police have found 10 bodies, all apparently murder victims. They found them while searching for Shannon Gilbert, who apparently fled a home in Oak Beach that fateful night. These yet unidentified skeletal remains were the last to be found in Suffolk County. The FBI is offering to help New York homicide investigators as they chase a possible serial killer. Shannon Gilbert had worked as an escort. She was advertising her trade on Craigslist and worked in the New York City area. On Saturday, May 1st, 2010, Shannon and her driver, Michael Pack, were wooed to Long Island with a high-playing client. The client, Joseph Brewer, met them at the front gate, as this was a very exclusive neighborhood. All right, this was around 2 a.m. Besides a 20-minute errand that Joseph Brewer and Shannon Gilbert took, presumably to buy drugs, it was a very uneventful night. Michael Pack was playing games on his phone and eventually dozed out. And then around 5 a.m. is when Brewer came in and knocked on the door. She won't leave, he says. Michael Pack, the driver, never spoke to the guys who hired the girls. But he walked into Brewer's home nonetheless, and he was taken back by the mess. All right, so every inch of the floor, the furniture, everything you could see was covered with debris, and it was just a hoarder's nightmare here. Um, Shannon was behind the couch, and she's yelling, they're trying to kill me. Not he is trying to kill me, but they are trying to kill me. Now, at this point, you would figure Michael Pack, the driver, who also acts as security, would be the shining ray of hope for her. And Shannon save her at this point, but she says, I'll find my own way home. Confused but compliant, Michael Pack goes to leave. This is when Shannon asks him, why are you going? What? Shannon followed up with an out of place, I'm on Long Island, she says into her iPhone. Pack realizing she's on the phone with 911 and is very confused by this whole situation because it's escalating very quickly. Nothing good could come from calling the police, he thinks. It's not like their job is, you know, exactly legal. Alright, so what happens from here is somewhat short on details, but this is essentially what happened. Shannon burst out the door of Joseph Brewer's home, and she begins frantically knocking on the doors of every neighbor's home that she can see. Just knocking, and remember, this is about 5 a.m., so people are confused, they don't really want to open the door for someone that's like this, even if, uh, you know, it is a woman and she probably needs help, you don't know if it's a scam, so people are hesitant to help. Eventually, she happens upon one of the neighbor's house. His name is Gus Coletti. All right, Gus plays an important part of this story because he's a retired man and he's a very friendly man a helpful man let's say and when he hears the the young lady pounding on the door at 5 a.m he's up already he opens the door and he says you know how can i help you he invites her in he has her sit down and she just seems um frantic not listening to what he's saying she's just speed talking at which point he says i'm gonna call the police when he when she hears the word police she bursts out the door again all right, this is just a repeat of what just happened with Joseph Brewer. He, he can't understand what's going on. Why did she frantically leave? He was there to help her. When he comes out, he sees Michael Pack, the driver, slowly going down the road, looking. And Gus Coletti gets in front of uh, Pack's car. All right, so he stops Michael Pack and he says, I just called the police. 
Now he's figuring that Michael Pack is probably the person she's running from. He doesn't know the whole story. Remember, he just came in, you know, at this this very last part. So he thinks that Michael Pack is probably the person she's running from. And Gus, uh, Gus Coletti says to him, I just called the cops. Michael Pack in turn says, you shouldn't have done that. You're going to get her in a lot of trouble. Very confused by all this. At this point, they both go their own ways trying to search for her. Now, this is really where the details drop off. She disappeared into the night not to be seen again for at least 18 months. Obviously, all the people that got the knocks on the door were frantically calling. So several people called, but when the cops got there, Shannon's nowhere to be found. Michael Pack's gone. He left. He figured there's nothing uh, he can do at this point. So the cops didn't the cops were left feeling like the crime never, or there was never a crime committed, so they left without an investigation. This was mistake number one. However, because of her disappearance, they did go searching for her several months later. And when they went searching for her, they found eight women, one man dressed as a woman, and a child around two years old, all dead in a dumping ground. And that's the story we're gonna look at today. The story of the Long Island serial killer is not an easy story to tell. It goes back many decades. We're not even sure if it's one man or several. The bodies are spread out throughout multiple places on Long Island. It's even hard to tell the basics. There's many red herrings, there's gaps, there's much stuff that the police have held back, and then there's stuff that the news have reported and they're inaccurate as well. I have found that the more research Lisk, the less I know. Most of the story of Lisk starts with the story of Shannon Gilbert, no different than what we just did. Shannon Gilbert wanted to be famous for her music abilities, for her singing. While she never found this in life, in death, she did find a higher purpose. She was famous, but not for what she thought she would be. Since we wouldn't even know of the serial killer without her story, it's fitting. Back around the turn of the century, early 2000s, bodies started piling up in Manorville. At the time, the police said there is no serial killer. Manorville was, and still is to a certain extent, a very desolate area. There's protected pine barrens all around. All right, the Long Island Expressway, the major throughway, snakes its way through, but on the north and the south, there's major areas that are just straight forest. Recently, my brother and I hiked through the area to find the exact spots that the bodies were found. When hiking into the forest, you can feel an uneasiness that must be a thousand times worse at night. The trees are tight, you can see shadows on the trees and you're not sure if you're looking at just another dead tree, maybe some debris. We found cars that were easily from the 70s or 80s just dumped. I found a, uh, a, snow a snowmobile, pots, pans, garbage bags everywhere, all in this nature preserve. So it's easy to want, you know see that this would be a, a favorite dumping ground of Lisk. In the early 2000s, when the bodies started stacking up, the local residents interviewed by the New York Times said that they thought it was the mob's new favorite dumping ground. That was until two small, young females were found in a three-year period with their hands, limbs, head hacked off and their new torsos left on display. Macabre as it is, it was pretty clear that there was a, a common MO. On November 19th, 2000, 
three hunters walking through the area happened upon the first woman, who was only identified two decades later thanks to advancements in the DNA. Her name was Valerie Mack. 24 years old in 2000 when she went missing, was described as five feet tall and approximately 100 pounds with brown hair and hazel eyes. She was working as an escort in Philadelphia at the time of her disappearance and also used the name Melissa Taylor. Family members last saw her in the spring or summer of 2000 in the area of Port Republic, New Jersey. She was never reported missing. Valerie Mack had been a prostitute that plied her trades in several different cities on the East Coast. There's not any information on how long she was in New York or Long Island, but she does turn up in the woods and they estimate that she was only dead a few days. Oddly enough, four days later after the discovery of Jane Doe, who we find out is Valerie Mack, hunters find a man who is wearing nothing but a pair of boxers. The man in the Gap boxers had been strangled and that does fit the MO for who we know is now Lisk. All right, it is commonly believed that the victims of Lisk were all strangled. Unfortunately, like I said before, the police at the time as these bodies were showing up said there was no serial killer at work, which has been proven to be false. They've also since identified the man in the Gap boxers. However, at the victim's family's request, they haven't identified him publicly. Some have said that this is gonna make it more difficult from a detective and investigation standpoint to identify the killer. So it is a little odd. Fast forward a little bit to July 26, 2003. A local woman, she's walking her dog in the, the woods over here, all right, and she happens upon the second female nude torso. No hands, no limbs, no head. The killer went through great lengths to slice up a tattoo that the Jane Doe had on her lower right kidney, so on her back. And then uh, it was obvious that the, we're gonna show on the screen here that he was slicing it up and down, up and down, because he didn't want this to be seen. A quick thinking detective had the medical examiner push the skin back together so that they could take a picture and kind of see what it might've looked like. He immediately saw that there was angel wings or maybe eagle wings as the uh, newspaper reported. And they thought it said, Pete's angel. This was the bulk of what the detectives had to go on. DNA wasn't prevalent like it is today, and the body had decomposed so badly, they didn't even know this, if this Jane Doe's race was. They didn't know she was white, Hispanic. Uh, when it decomposes that much, it's very hard to tell. Obviously, the killer or killers went way out of their way to cut the head, the, the limbs, you know, the hands, so that she couldn't be identified. They also believed that that was the reason that they went out of their way to slice up the tattoo, that there may be some kind of identifying mark. This is where a detective working a missing person's case down in Washington, D.C. comes into play. All right, so they published this tattoo after they smushed it together with the medical examiner. And this detective was working on a missing prostitute, a young girl. Her name was Jessica Taylor. He immediately recognized the tattoo, but he said it didn't say Pete's angel. It actually said Remy's angel. Remy believing to be the pimp of the young prostitute, Jessica Taylor. Jessica Taylor was last seen at the Port Authority on July 21st, 2003. Now this Port Authority, you know, come up again later. Just keep that in mind. And the medical examiner determined that Jessica Taylor, Jane Doe, had been dead just a few days, so the timing matched up. After a DNA profile, they did realize that this was Jessica Taylor. This obviously made the, uh, the killer realize that his attempts really weren't gonna pan out. So we believe that this may have 
changed up his MO later. Both Valerie Mack and Jessica Taylor had tragedy and trauma that led them to a life of prostitution. But this should have no bearing on the urgency to solve this case and the value of their life. The world was very different in the late 90s when our story actually began. In 1996, when Jane Doe washed ashore, cell phones, they were rare, they were expensive, the security was not like it is today where there's cameras everywhere. A killer in 1996 would have been fully aware of fingerprints. They had been around for at least 100 years at this point. And like most Americans, they would have also been aware of DNA thanks to the O.J. Simpson trial that had just wrapped up six months prior. Fire Island is one of the many barrier islands that sit on the south shore of Long Island. During the summer months, it's a beautiful vacation spot with beaches and bars and all the dressings you would come to expect for an adult summer playground. It's also known for its iconic gay resort, Cherry Grove, where local stories of wild drug-fueled parties were once whispered about in the 70s and 80s. It's important to note this because that one of the confirmed victims of Lisk was a man dressed in women's clothing. On April 20th, 1996, Robert and Andrew Ragona, two seasonal residents, brothers, were walking along the beach. They were about a mile west of Davis Park on the bay side of the island when they happened upon a black garbage bag. Presumably, out of curiosity, they opened the garbage bag and found two women's legs. Both legs had surgical scars at the ankles and the right leg had a three and a half inch scar on the posterior calf muscle. Finally, an L-shaped scar on the shin. Most importantly, the toes were painted a bright red, which a gruesome find, but it indicated that they had possibly not been in the water for too long, that the elements had not eroded it. The female was dubbed the Fire Island Doe. And because of the red paint on her toenails, we assume that she died around that last week of April in 1996. There's very little to know of Fire Island Doe. And to this day, her, she has never been given her identity back. The story of an unexpected person walking on a beach, walking through the woods, enjoying a nature preserve, enjoying a state park, walking their dog in the morning, this has become a very familiar pattern for the early days of Lisk. These early victims were dumped in ways that it was clear the killer made no effort to hide the body. In some ways, I'm sure he derived pleasure, a sick pleasure at that, knowing that the person who would find these poor girls would also become victimized by the gruesome findings. Their feelings of safety, their neighborhoods, and the serenity of their home all disturbed by his actions. I'm sure he relished the thought when he read it in the newspaper as something we know many serial killers do. Like the brothers on Fire Island, a man and his daughter were walking around the large man-made Hempstead Lake Park. It's a state park, and in particular, they were by the McDonald Pond when they happened upon a Rubbermaid container. This was in 1997. In the Rubbermaid tub, they found a red towel and a green floral pillowcase marked by blood. There was a torso. The head, the arms, and both legs below the knees were missing. She would later be known as Peaches by all that recount this case. 
This was due to a tattoo of a peach with a bite taken out of it, found on the woman. Detectives at the time felt that this could be a great lead, and then they published a picture of the tattoo in a national magazine that was geared towards tattoo artists. Lo and behold, one Stephen Colin from Connecticut answered this ad. All right, so he actually has an account where he recalls that a young black woman from New York uh, came into his tattoo parlor. Unfortunately, he couldn't remember if the young lady was from the Bronx or Long Island, which is a little weird because they're very different. They're not connected, um, you know, by any land. And, you know, one's suburbia, one's city-like, so I'm not sure why he would confuse Long Island and the Bronx, but he did know that the, the young lady that came in came in with an aunt and a cousin. So yeah, she had two people that were with her, but what she did remember was that she was around 18 or 19 years old, and she came in with a cousin and an aunt, and that she was talking about how she was in Connecticut because she was having some issues with her boyfriend. Now, going back to 2010, when the uh, Gilgo bodies were discovered, there was a lot of debate whether there was one killer, two killers or three killers. Now, the disgraced former district attorney, Thomas Spoda, had uh, publicly went against what the detectives were saying, that there was one killer. He disagreed, and one of his main points was that peaches didn't fit the mold. All right, so we'll, you'll see later that when we talk about the Go-Go 4, they have uh, characteristics that are all very similar, whereas peaches did not. Um, it's now commonly you know, touted that it's one killer, but then again, who knows? There's been a lot of misdirection in this case. So Spada would argue that there were two killers all dumping in the same area. Now, it's not too hard to think that there could be more than one serial killer dumping and working Long Island. It's happened before. There's three million residents on Long Island, and in the 90s, you had Joel Rifkin and Anthony Schulman, both of them killing prostitutes, working off the same type of uh, victim and they were dumping in the same area. Both were caught, and they also line up with the same time frame we're talking here. However, from what we understand, they don't believe that any of these are Joel Rifkin's or Anthony's uh, victims. Um, I'm sure there's reasons, because they haven't released a whole lot to the public. Everything we know has been from investigative work, and even then, some of the stuff is disputed whether it's true or not because it hasn't been confirmed. We've also seen other high-profile cases in the U.S. in different states where you have multiple killers dumping on the same roads. So it wouldn't go without some kind of evidence here that maybe there is multiple. I would have to assume because the disgraced uh, Spada is gone now, and they're saying that there's only one killer, that they must have something that supports that. Um, there certainly seems to be a lot of evidence that does support one killer. Um, you know, just because Peaches doesn't fit the actual profile type of the rest of them. Namely, it seems like because maybe because she was black and the other girls were white. Um, but that, that, that's not enough. You know, that's not enough to go off because there's other non-white victims that, uh, you know, Liss is uh, credited to as well. So, you know... Not a big fan of Spoda anyhow, but it's worth noting. So in this next chapter that we're coming up on right now, we're gonna discuss how Peaches, Jessica Taylor, Valerie Mack, all would be connected to the victims found by Gilgo Beach. This is how we connect all of them throughout time. This is also where we find that Lisk was one of the most prolific serial killers on Long Island history. <laughs>